This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge webinar, How Social-Emotional Learning Really Affects Students. On October 30th, join Ed Surge for a panel discussion to learn how SEL affects students inside and outside the classroom. From educators' experiences to the latest research, we'll cover it all. Register now at bit.ly slash real S-E-L. Technology shapes the way we interact every day. We FaceTime with family across the country. We send snaps to our friends to let them know where we are and what we're doing. And we send cash through apps that kind of lets us snoop on what financial transactions our phone contacts are up to. But sometimes we fail to realize that the platforms and data that push us to interact, they don't always do it in objective ways. It's caused by algorithms and they're designed by some human. People who literally write the script for the ways that tech will make us tick, for better or for worse. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Sydney Johnson. This area of research of attempting to apply design to encourage certain behaviors is called persuasive tech. And that's what we're digging into on today's episode. We got started on this when I met a researcher at a conference not too long ago who introduced me to this topic, and I wondered, wait, what is that, and how might it be applied to education? Yeah, and apparently, we learned as we talked to some folks, the best way to think about this is to start with the iconic furniture store, Ikea. Sandra Bury Graham Hansen, an assistant professor of communication and psychology at Aalborg University in Denmark, explained it this way. Whenever I have to kickstart a course on persuasive design, I usually spend an hour or two talking about IKEA. One of the examples I usually bring up is the maps. When you enter IKEA, there's always a big map of the of the IKEA store. It's usually blue and it'll have yellow footprints or something on it. But the map is always made in a way that it seems like it's such a short walk. You know, you can get from the entrance to, to the kitchen just by, you know, 20 little dots on the map, but realistically it takes you 40 minutes. Yes to get to that place, but they make it, they make the complex task feel easier by reducing it and making it easier for us to get there. Uh, they've also got the principle of tunneling going on with all the, uh, the light arrows on the floors that of course you could go wandering out on your own, but it's, you know, it's easier to stick with the tunnel and just go the way the arrows are pointing. And so they've got all these things going on in their store and you just go with it. You don't see anyone running in the in the wrong direction in like here store. You take the long way around and you look at every single sofa before you get to look at kitchen. So that's in a physical store. But the same principles can be applied and even more powerfully in the digital realm. One person studying the way data and tech design can influence behavior is Margarita Cuis, a behavior designer at Stanford University's Peace Innovation Lab where researchers are looking for ways to harness behavior design in a way that promotes peace. In other words, can data and tech be designed to steer individuals or our whole society in a better direction? Um, it's a pretty new field. Um, it was The field of behavior design has been started at Stanford uh, under uh, B.J. Fogg, and he's also the father of persuasive technology. So when you think about how um, technologies like cell phones change behavior at scale, this was research that he was doing at Stanford in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And at that time, his PhD season, he called it capology, because we like, were captive of technology, huh. right? And then the name evolved to be persuasive technology. 
And it was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then when the iPhone came out, you know, and we know how our lives have changed mm-hmm. in the last 11 years with the advent of the iPhone, we can see how people have adopted behaviors, you know, that weren't possible before anywhere from, you know, you see the, um, how our attention has changed with technology, um, the, the rise of wearables, a lot of different things where now people can measure mm-hmm. behavior that they couldn't before, um, either physical behavior or social behavior as well. Um, about nine years ago, BJ started looking at, well, how do I systematically um, teach people how to design behavior, right? And so he started coming up with frameworks for that. So when we look at behavior design, we're really talking about a systematic approach for engineering behavior. Well, if you can do that with inane behaviors, with silly behaviors, could we also do that in a way that would promote peace? So Mark Nelson and I started down this path of saying, well, what is peace Mm -hmm. in this age, this digital age? And we determined that it was really about how good can we be to each other and how good can we be to each other through mediating technology and across some sort of difference boundary, whether it's gender or race or nationality or, or language or anything. Because we live so much in the digital world, the way we design the software and how we design the technology all of a sudden has an impact on how we interact with each other. In higher ed, we see these sorts of quiet cues all the time. They mostly take the form of nudges, those text messages or emails sent to students reminding them about important upcoming deadlines or financial aid, or just to check in on their grades to see if they're dipping and flag them if they are. But Sandra Burry Graham Hansen, the professor in Denmark we spoke to, argues that nudging doesn't necessarily make a lasting impact once those nudges have stopped. I think the main difference is that persuasive technologies have a focus on continuous behavior change, while nudging has a stronger focus on momentarily behavior change. That is the moment you are confronted with the nudge, then you are nudged into doing something specific. To really drive it home, she made another comparison to those IKEA stores, which she says are really, really popular in Denmark. People are nudged into little things like, for instance, waiting in line the right way in the IKEA restaurants. But the thing is that because they don't process what they're doing, that doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden really good and well-behaved while waiting in line to get on the bus or catch a train. Because they don't process the activity they're actually doing it, they just do it. But plenty of others are concerned about what or who gets to define what's quote-unquote good. Safia Noble is an assistant professor at USC and author of the book, Algorithms of Oppression. She studies the way technology and algorithms can exacerbate social inequalities. You know, in the realm of persuasive technology, it's interesting because I think that the public is not particularly aware that they are being persuaded. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the, the kind of news of Cambridge Analytica um, using people's kind of psychographic uh, data and, you know, their responses to say personality tests and kind of the personality profiling to um, lead them to think about, you know, certain candidates over others. I think that what came as a huge shock to most people who are aware of that. Now that is in many ways, I think business as usual. I mean, Cambridge Analytica, I think, is just one of many firms that are interested in persuading people to buy a product, 
um, be interested in trying a new service, right? Uh, thinking about all kinds of things. I mean, the traditional model of advertising is really what undergirds most of the digital technologies that we are engaging with. Noble goes one step further, arguing that in education, these platforms and technologies are working two ways, shaping the perceptions and behaviors for staff and faculty as well. Well, you know, we know that, uh, for example, um, admissions um, officers and offices on university campuses are um, engaging with large-scale databases that help optimize um, decision-making for them. And I think that we could think of that as kind of a, um, an analysis of a whole lot of different kind of factors that students report out on about their activities and grades and test scores and who they are and keywords they might be using in their essays. And then, um, you know, again, delivering a set of recommendations or ideal candidates to universities. I mean, to me, this is where I think of, um, uh, you know, really troublesome ways of thinking about admitting students to a university. Because of course, there are plenty of people who should go to college and who are brilliant and who, and who may not have the right keywords, so to speak, in their backgrounds, right? That um, can't be optimized for when a database is kind of looking and trying to do analytics on their profiles. So these kinds of profiling systems that we see um, in higher ed, I think definitely require a lot of more study. Um, they are certainly persuading the um, decisions around admissions um, who might be the most likely to, for example, um, stay and matriculate all the way through versus potentially dropping out. Um, I think it narrows the playing field um, for a lot of people and really, uh, um, again, raises a whole host of new questions about um, how systems like universities are being kind of persuaded towards certain types of profile uh, students and not others. And these are, the, these are not kind of the sexy ways people think about persuasive technology, but those are um, at play already. But proponents of persuasive design see some of this concern as counterproductive. Don't get me wrong. It's not about talking, you know, teaching everyone how to be able to design persuasive technologies, but it is making sure that people, and I would say perhaps especially younger people, understand the principles of what these different systems are doing. Because if they understand the principles of persuasive systems, then that also means that they are able to reject unwanted influence. And that pretty much means that they are still in control. Still, Curious is not shy to point out the risks and concerns within her own field. If you do it well, we could create systems where we could have mutually beneficial interdependence hmm. and mutually beneficial economies. And if you don't do it well, you end up with polarized societies. And it's not only well-intended university researchers working on this technology, of course. Private, loosely regulated companies are thinking about designing our behavior every day, from the apps we use on our phones to the ones that monitor our homes. But what about those potential good applications? Could there be a way that behavior design could push a faculty member to avoid some of their own biases? Could the technology really change students' routines so that they complete courses and their degree? Maybe I'm old school about it when it comes to <laughs> students. I do feel like um, 
you know, having the capacity to make a lot of decisions and manage their own academic success um, and pathways is really important and it's valuable. And um, to the degree that, you know, the the learning management systems um, and otherwise are kind of shaping their behavior, I think that in the end will probably do them more of a disservice. You know, in some ways, this kind of Pavlovian uh, shaping of student behavior, I think, again, is something we want to pause and think about whether that's helpful. I mean, it may, in fact, get 100% of the papers turned in on time, 100% of the time. But, you know, is that the point? Or is, you know, writing great papers, making mistakes, getting feedback, going back and forth? I mean, I don't know what we're socializing students for around some of the technologies that I'm often encouraged to use um, in the classroom and some of them I don't use, quite frankly. Um, You know, when I think about things like bias, you know, again, I don't think that's something that you can automate out of people um, by kind of giving them a strike or a ding or, you know, making them aware in ways that kind of use these technologies. I mean, I'm not sure how one polices, you know, faculty behavior such that, you know, you get those kinds of outcomes you're looking for. I think what happens, you know, one of the most effective ways to reduce bias, and and when I say bias, I mean, like, help, uh, you know, faculty to engage in anti-racist behavior, right, or in um, uh, behavior that empowers women and, you know, multiple genders in their classroom, is um, more education, so, you know, I guess like the question is, um, you know, do these systems, what's their relationship to better educating and keeping a process of lifelong learning alive for teachers and instructors, professors, and, and so forth, and including students? Okay, so what should we do? There's bias in everything, right? And so the trick is, um, how do you make the technologist self-aware. So we're in this interesting time where coders have an inordinate amount of power Mm. without the commensurate training. So part of what my lab looks at is safe deployment of technology because any and all technology can and will be weaponized Mm. or it can and will be used for bad intent. The creators of Twitter did not intend to destabilize democracy and and allow for the proliferation of fake news. That wasn't like they were sitting there going like, oh, wouldn't that be great if we could do this? We're going to unleash this power. It just didn't occur to them, right? The, 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 the designers of NAST and the New York Times had a story the other week about how domestic violence abusers are using the, all these IoT devices that we have in our home to harass their victims by changing the combination locks on these digital locks, by using the webcams that are used for surveillance against, you know, burglars on the occupants of the home, you know, changing the temperature, gaslighting those victims digitally. Now, I bet the product developers at Nest, it never occurred to them that someone might do that remotely with an app to harass someone in their home. So knowing that that we see this with every new technology now, I see, I detect a pattern, then you say, okay, how do we bring ethical concerns at conception of the technology and say, okay, I need to, since we're gathering all this data anyway, how do I have engineers looking for patterns that are unusual? 
And so having a self level of self-awareness. I think part of it is for, for um, institutions, for companies, for customers to ask those questions and to say, I need to see an audit trail. How do I check if I have a question, if there is an algorithmic bias, how can I verify that? Mm. You know, there needs to be an ability to do that in some way. And that, and this is all very new and it's pretty young, but the, the first step is to ask the question. And so again, market demand, mm -hmm. right? So just as people want organic range-free chicken and they want cruelty-free cosmetics, we need to have um, ethically developed software and we need to have evidence that that has been done to some standard, some certification. You can't be a civil engineer in the state of California without being a registered engineer knowing how to do seismic you know, buildings. You, you, you can't build a, a building mm -hmm. in California that won't stand up to code in an earthquake. Mm -hmm. We need to have something to, the equivalent of that with these technology platforms, especially when they touch people. So IKEA isn't the only one doing this. Persuasive tech is already here, and it's only going to grow. The real question seems to be, how do we make that growth in a healthy and productive way? Yeah, and how do we make sure that this world we're shaping is one we actually want to live in? We should understand the ethical frameworks around those technologies. We should understand whether we have uh, an opportunity to opt out. We should be thinking about whether the public can be harmed by those persuasions. And we should really understand them uh, in the short and long term. And without having that kind of transparency and also control, I think um, we put a lot at stake uh, in in these kind of educational spaces. And it's really important. We're at a crucial moment where we might um, fully embrace certain kinds of projects that we can't easily come back from. So it's a, it's a good time for us to be reflective. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode has been a bit of an experiment in format. So we'd love to know what you think. You can send feedback to me at sydney at edsurge.com. Or to me at jeff at edsurge.com. Or, you know, hit both of us up. We'd really love to hear your review. I mean, maybe you like the usual style of just having one long interview better. Just let us know. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And follow the rest of our coverage on Twitter, Facebook, or our weekly newsletters. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.